With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to... Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. We are back for part three of our GSP Best of the Decade series, looking at all of the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the 2010s of tennis. And obviously, it being 10 years of tennis, both on the men's and women's side, there are tons of topics we hope to hit over the next couple of months. We've got, you know, the tennis world while still steamrolling, and we'll talk about all of that on our mini break podcast, of course. But now's the time for some reflection. You can look at the decade, see the trends, see the biggest players, uh, you know, what what they did well, what they didn't do well, what we can learn from what we saw in these 10 years. And that's why we are looking forward to doing this series. Uh, today, our first, you know, our first two parts, uh, we looked at the ATP side, we looked at the best seasons of the decade, we looked at the players who came closest to winning slams. That's what we're going to be doing today. But on the WTA side, we're going to be looking at those players who came closest, but ultimately did not win a slam. And there is no better guest I would rather talk about this with than our guest today, the author of the book, Novak Djokovic, make, re, Making the Rough Places Plain, the co-editor of the wonderful tennis website, tenniswithanaccent.com, and of course, the king of the wee tweets, Matt Zemek. Hey, great shot, and welcome back to the podcast. It has been far too long. Well, you know, it's, it's the time of year when I have to write about another sport, um, college football, for, for income, So, and, and all the almost all of the main tournaments are in China or East Asia. So um, it's, it's, uh, it was, it's the good time to take a break or perhaps a mini break. And I'm glad to be back. <laughs> oh, well, see, right with the pun away. I know I'm glad to have you. Uh, yeah, it's look, there's a ton of tennis, as you mentioned, going on. There's a ton of different sports, basketball, football, all of these different things. I know you have to spend time covering that. And as much as I would love to hear your thoughts on the many things going on in the 2019 tennis season, uh, the reason I wanted to have you on today, again, there's no person I would rather reflect on a large period of time, look at the big takeaways, the big narratives than you. And when you are looking at your list coming up with this uh when looking at this topic, the best WTA players of the decade who did not win a slam, what was the criteria you used in helping select the players for this list? Well, it wasn't some overly scientific study. It was basically, you know, were they, were they in major finals, Uh, at least one? And were they, were they threats for, you know, at least a few years, um, for the the biggest championships. So, you know, I I couldn't really put um someone like Yanina Wickmeyer there cuz just she she <laughs> faded as soon, as quickly as she emerged. Um, you know, so having at least a little bit of staying power and coming close enough to be noticed. I mean, those those were just the two basic uh components of of what I put together. Cuz I mean, it was- it's it's really hard to uh it's hard to uh 
say that, you know, oh, this player had a lot of talent, but she was, you know, losing in third rounds of majors. Um, you know, that, that it's not, doesn't really come quite that close. Um, there were a few players that I didn't even mention, and we might actually wind up mentioning them, who, you know, would make an occasional major quarterfinal. I think that's, that's a reasonable boundary and description for the kind of player that, that we're talking about. But so you had to be, you know, somewhat close enough to matter um and and you had to matter for at least you know a few years not just one so um that i think that kind of provides a little more structure to this debate similar to last week much of the criteria i looked at you talked about grand slam results sustained excellence it's were you able to reach the quarterfinals over a streak of slams a lot of people i want to say can you uh a big argument jamie and i had because i tended to put a lot of weight of did you show you could sustain you know a top five level over a long elongated period of time to where if we demanded that sort of excellence out of you over a two-week stretch at a slam it wouldn't be an outrageous demand it's have you proven it before or have you gone and won a premier mandatory event, a premier five event? Uh, did you make the world tour finals during your time? Things of that nature. And then, you know, as I mentioned at the slams, did you make, you know, fourth round or better, maybe eight slams in a row? Uh, that's the sort of stretch of quality I'm looking for to say, okay, yeah, we, it was reasonable of us to expect you to have won a slam. I also thought in comparison to the ATP side, it was very interesting because one of the big stats I look at on the men's side, there were only six guys who won a slam in the 2010s decade. Those guys, of course, being the big four, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Murray, Wawrinka, and Chilich. On the women's side, yes, Serena had a great decade by anyone's standard. Of course, she brought home 12 slams herself, and I mean, that speaks to her incredible level of skill, but there were 19 players who won slams in the 2010s. And so 19 different players in 40 slams. I mean, only Serena won 12, you know, I think Kerber won three, a couple, a bunch won two and a bunch won one. But that speaks to the fact that a lot of players who had, who displayed the quality to be a grand slam champion, they went ahead and did the thing. Absolutely. No, when I went through the decade, when it was within reach, you know, a lot of, there were several players who got it that one time. I mean, either, you know, some of them had a very, you know, relatively short run. Others did, you know, spend several years chasing it down. The two most prominent examples being Caroline Wozniacki and Simona Halep. Um, but, and, and, but a few others, you know, got that, got that one title, you know, Samantha Stoser, you know, at the very beginning of this decade, um, and Francesca Schiavone, uh, also early in the decade and, and Lena, you know, before she, uh, she hung it up and she was actually able to get two. So, and, uh, you know, Flavia Panetta in her very last major. So yeah, a lot, there were a lot of players who could have been zero major players, but they got that one title. Um, you know, Jamie and I had a, Jamie and I had a running joke going that one of the best of the decade pods will just do Italian women's tennis and we'll talk about Schiavone, Bartoli and Panetta, and we'll just go in and maybe throw in some Georgie highlights as well. Oh, don't stain it with Georgie, please. <laughs> exactly, the rise. But yeah, I, I agree. It speaks to the fact that a lot of players did win. And I also think when you're looking at this narrative, how much did Serena factor into it for you? The fact that she did win 12 slams, that it was really, I think, 2012 and then kind of 2016 through 2018, although I'm sure we'll get into that. Those were really, there were extended windows, I suppose, for the mo the most 
where the most other players won slams, but there was a lot of Serena dominance as well. It's how she did against a lot of these players, which is how they stacked up at majors. No question. And, you know, Serena was that brick wall through the 2017 Australian Open. You know, she was, she was the person who would crush souls and shatter dreams. If, if, if you were in her path in a bracket, you know, it was, it was curtains. And so, you know, much like the big three have, have stood in the way of, you know, the D- David Ferrer's and the David Nalbandians and the um, Tomas Birdikis of the world um, and, and, you know, several others in vain. Um, you know, it, it's Serena was that player for the WTA. I mean, there's, there's, there's no question the immense ripple effect yeah, on and for- careers that, that she yeah, and for a lot of these players, uh, one factor Jamie and I talked about in the men's, I want to do that today, and then I promise we'll get into our list, but is the window open or is it closed for this player that we're going to discuss? On the men's side, you know, for players like Ferrer, for Burdiches, who were guys who came up and came closest in the decade, I mean, their window's obviously closed, but it's very interesting on the women's side to see, you know, the fact that we've had a generation of players like Bardi, Osaka, Andrescu, obviously now coming up through the pipelines, Ostapenko as well, don't want to forget about her. Uh, Muguruza's young too, but that they've won slams already. Is it for some of these players after these 10 years, the window's already closed? I I mean, how much did that factor into your list as well? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I didn't, that didn't really prominently figure into, you know, how, how, I, how I put this together. I, I, you know, I rested on two basic pillars and, and I would be lying to you Alex, if I said that I mapped out the framework really beyond them, that's that's the <laughs> simplest answer I can give you. No, I appreciate that. Look, I I, I get into these lists. It's best of the decade, right? We got to have integrity. So uh, I'm all on on that. But with that, uh, let's get into these players we are going to discuss. And the first name I want to talk about, the name when you sent me the first, your list of seven players, I immediately responded with her last name and exclamation points. And that, of course is Aga Radwanska, uh, the first player I want to talk about on this list. You look at her, her career highs through the decade before we get into it. Uh, she reached her highest ranking, a career high of number two in the singles ranking in July of 2012. You look at her results at the majors over her career. I mean, she's had success. She's made a major final at the 2012 Wimbledon. She has four semifinals to her name at Slam, seven more quarterfinals, and to me, she's the first player I thought of uh, when looking at this decade in terms of slams on the table. Would you agree with that? The David Ferrer, if if you may entertain, of the WTA side. Yeah, I mean, I think just the main thing here is that uh, Dinara Safina and Elena Dementieva properly belong to the previous decade. I mean, I think that's really the another specific uh, detail that we have to mention for are a great shot pod audience. Just that, you know, the, the bulk of the, the career and the big moments for both Dementieva and uh, Safina, you know, occurred in, in, the, in the last into this calendar decade a little bit, but I think, I just think that they properly belonged to the previous decade. And I'm not, you know, I think uh, Vera Zvonareva also would fit in that same, category so they don't really belong to this decade and i think so if, if you're talking this decade uh i think radvanska radvanska uh 
And then, you know, so the, the, here's here's the real, I mean, I know that we're going to talk about her in, in more depth later, but I think that Yelena Yankovic uh, really is kind of a bridge player between the two decades. You know, she she came the closest to winning a major, um, it, you know, in, in at, at different at different points in her career. And, and she really had a foot, one foot in each door, you know, in each decade. So that's kind of a harder player to classify but i think that she had enough occasions uh, of significance in in decade to, to, to warrant classification so you can kind of split yankovic um but uh i think you know radvanska very cleanly and clearly belongs to this decade so that that might be a point of distinction that helps listeners uh sort this out a little bit yeah and look for radvanska and you're right we will talk about yankovic another player on the list but yeah you look at the bulk of her success she had three quarterfinals before 2010 but you know all of her finals and semifinals came in the 2010s in particular of course when you make a final in a major that means you've come as close as you can get to without winning one she did make that final in wimbledon in 2012 ultimately losing 6-1-5-7-6-2 to serena williams but why i think radvanska qualified for a player as good enough to have won a major. You look at her results over her career. She made the World Tour Finals eight times. Uh, she did it six times in a row during this decade. So again, that speaks to her being one of the players of the decade, making it every year from 2011 to 2016. Uh, three semifinals and then a title for her at the World Tour Finals in 2015. You look for the premier mandatory results she put up in during her career and the, at premier five tournaments. I mean, she won a title in Miami. She won a title in Canada, a title in Tokyo, <clears throat> two titles in Beijing. So on the biggest stages with the best players in the world being there, she won events. To me, it's... A lot of this, Radwanska is one of the players, I, I mentioned this earlier, but she was who I was really thinking of when, had she been able to beat Serena, there would have been a grand slam on her resume. Oh, absolutely. Well, yes, and that would have applied to a lot of other players, but <laughs> yeah, I think sure, the point sure. that you make, and it's entirely, I think the the point that you make, and it's an entirely accurate one, is that, you know, she she was constantly in the mix. You know, she she was in the top 10, top five regularly. You know, she didn't just parachute in and have a cup of coffee. You know, she she was a regular at the uh, top five WTA diner. So um, just just her the regularity of her presence, you know, so Wimbledon final in 2012, um, Australian Open semifinal in 2016. You know, she won a, a, a WTA finals championship. You know, just just constantly in the mix, constantly in the hunt, constantly in the second weeks of majors. You know that that basically fits the description of a of a player who has you know lifted herself to a considerable height. And really, there's a there's a significant uh, comparison to be made with Karolina Pliskova. You know, a lot of the same boxes are checked, a lot of the same standards are reached, but without that one thing, and that is lifting a trophy on. Uh, championship Saturday at a major. 
Yeah, and to your top 10 point, from 2018 to 2016, she finished in the top 10 all but one year. Uh, That was 2010 when she finished number 14, so still not too bad, as Novak Djokovic would say. Um, Again, sustained excellent, a a streak of slams. She went uh, quarterfinals, third round, finals, fourth round, quarterfinal, quarterfinal, semifinal, fourth round, semifinal from the start of 2012 to the Australian Open 2014. That's sustained excellence. She was that good, as you mentioned. So that she wasn't able, and there were a lot of health issues. There was a lot of different uh, things that went into why Radwanska uh, had some, uh, or came up short over the course of her career. It's also why we see her retired now. But in terms of you know tennis wise, if do you think there's anything that held her back? Aga Radwanska may be the most creative player of the 2010s decade. Just the way she attacked you, it's the short angles, different spins, different elevations over the net. Such a tricky player, and yet, so you, know, you think of a definitive sequence, it's her scattering around the court, but there's no big play. There was no big shot in the biggest moments where you say, okay, Radwanska's going to turn to this, and that's how she's going to win a free, easy point. Um, to me, I think that's what held her back. And she, again, she came so close. Uh, five occasion semifinals are better. Uh, but that, to me, is what ultimately held her short. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. I mean, look look at Ashley Barty for, for, as an example. She has a very crafty, diverse game. You know, she... She is not a pure power hitter, um, but she has a good she has a good strong serve. Not an amazing serve, but definitely an above average serve. And I think that Radwanska lacked uh, that that thumper. Uh, and you know, I think any just about any great tennis player is going to need it at some point. Um, I, when when considering also that Yelena Ostapenko, you know, won uh, Roland Garros in 2017. Her serve has gotten worse, not better, since since that moment. Um, you know, it, it wasn't as much of a liability. Uh, it it wasn't as attackable, and that might just be because p- opponents hadn't seen it quite as much and weren't able to read it. But nevertheless, um, you know, Radvanska just you know wasn't able to get her serve quite to the point that she needed it. You know, let's look at Wozniacki and Halep as other examples. And when Wozniacki won the 2018 Australian open, her serve was a beefed up serve. Her serve was noticeably better. It was noticed. had noticeably more pop. She got more free points from it. Uh, it, it really carried her uh, through a lot of that tournament. So um, when, when you look at why Radvanska fell short, it just, you know, her, her serve was like a C plus, serve if she had been able to get it to a b long enough against elite players you know at least a few times when it really mattered you know she might have been able to break through but she she generally didn't have enough on that particular score i agree with you and again in terms of what she did consistency she made the semifinals uh quarterfinals, semifinals, 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 five-year uh, in a row, Dubai, uh, at Dubai slash Doha. I mean, she had the sustained excellence semifinal, quarterfinal, title, final uh, in Tokyo. She's had so much success, as I mentioned, at so many different events during her time. But it always shocked me that she never made beyond the fourth round at the U.S. Open. Someone with her sort of credentials on the hard court. Uh, that's certainly something I'm sure she kicks herself over. Uh, but the, the last question I want to ask you, and this may be a topic we do at length in terms of Hall of Famers of the decade, but given her resume, career high, as I mentioned, number three, all of these different titles at everything but the slams, Aga Radwanska, Hall of Famer, yes or no? 
Nope. You got in my book, in my book, you got to win a major. Interesting. See, I just that is that is that is the you know when when you play professional tennis or professional golf, you are you are measured by how you play in the most important tournaments. So you know, God love David Ferrer. That's not a Hall of Fame career. You know, it's 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 the Hall of extremely good, but it's not the Hall of great. It's not the Hall of immortality, the Hall of fame. It's the Hall of really really good and getting the most out of your tennis on a on a daily basis but never finding a way past the big three you know and that's that's why and 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 not only not finding a way past the big three not finding a way past the Vavrinkas and murray's you know ferrer had some matches against murray uh that he could have won they were they were matches that reached uh 50 50 pivot points at roland garros and also wimbledon in the second week coulda coulda but didn't and that is the, that is the dividing line between who gets to Newport and who doesn't and that, and, and those are the those are the berries so i appreciate again i never like you more than when we disagree so i appreciate that you have uh, uh, high expectations for the hall of fame it's the tennis hall of fame but for me part of the thing in doing this best of the decade series is writing the narrative of the 2010s and i don't know if you can write the narrative of 2010s without talking about aga radwanska and I th- that that to me is why she. I mean, she won a world tour finals. She got up to number three in the world. She made a slam final. Uh, it's not like she was a one hit wonder. She had sustained. You would say really good. I would say sustained excellence, but that might be a stretch. It's close. If she got voted in, I wouldn't object. I, th- I guess I that's what I'll say. I can hear in your voice. I can hear in your voice, Alex. Oh, but I just want her to be in the hall. I of love her. <laughs> I want her to have that moment. Yeah, it 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 really is the 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 sentiment of a lover. But um, <laughs> sometimes love has to be tough, Alex. That's fair. Again, and, I, I I appreciate that. Tell people that we love that you know what you, you can't get everything in life. Boy, I really sound like a father. I should shut up. But uh, <laughs> but, but you know that that's what we're left with. You know, no, we, there are lots of things we'd like to be true. I'd like to have a couple million dollars, but it doesn't mean <laughs> I'm going to get it. Yeah, no, that's completely fair. I can live with that. Well, then, in, with that in mind, I think I know how you'll answer the Hall of Fame question for most of these players. But let's move on to our next player. You brought her up at the start of our Rodwanska pl- uh, conversation, so let's go to her next. Yelena Yankovic, and again— it's never more fun than when we disagree. And for Yankovic, the big thing you can turn to in terms of slam opportunities this decade. Obviously, she did make a Grand Slam final. Uh, or sorry, she made a Grand Slam semifinal in 2010 at the French Open. She made the quarterfinals in 2013. Her one final coming in 2008 at the U.S. Open. Um, why, for you, was she someone who came closest? The point of Yankovic is that she was leading Justine Enna. I mean, this was not this decade, but I think it's really the the uh, the, the ultimate pivot point of her career. Um, in the 2006 U.S. Open semifinals, she was leading, and she argued a lines call, and she spent a lot of time arguing that lines call. And I don't think that I, I, I I'm I'm pretty sure it wasn't like a a break point or a deuce point. I think it was either a love 15 or a 15 all point. You know, she was up a break. Um, this was not, you know, she had the clear upper hand at the time, but she got into a very long argument with the chair and 
she lost focus and concentration. She wasn't able to reel herself back in after that moment. And I think that set a tone for her career. And it it planted a seed that in important moments, uh, you know, she would not have that extra emotional edge, that extra reservoir of calm uh, to, to, to get over the finish line. You know, we, we talk about this so often. We've talked about this, you and I, on podcasts uh, earlier this year in 2019. Belinda Bencich, you know, she has this luminous game, but sometimes she'll get into a 20, 25-minute patch of time where she just gets really angry, and it takes a while for her to sell herself down. You know, recall uh, Roland Garros against Laura Siegemund. You know, she was leading that match, and then she just descended into a dark and stormy place. She needed that match to be suspended. Um, she lost a series of games right before the suspension for darkness, came back the next day and won it. And, you know, that's just a, kind of a reflection of, of, of her career that, you know, she, I mean, she and she is improving, but she, she, she has to avoid those 20 to 25 minutes of dark, stormy seas. And when I look at Yankovic, I see... A, a lot of those those same things. I think a lot, that that tendency manifested itself a lot, uh, and especially in the key moments, such as at the U.S. Open, when when, when uh, you know she lost to, to Kim Clijsters, and then she lost a Roland Garros semifinal to um, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm forgetting here. I, I think it was 2007. Ten no, Annen or I, 2008 to Ivanovic. You know, okay, maybe or it was 2010 to Stozer. 2010 to Stozer. She might have lost. Oh, she lost. She lost a semifinal to Stozer in, in uh, 2011. 2010. 2010. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you know, whenever she would get close, I, I, you know, my my recollection of her is that she wouldn't be able to pull herself back in. You know, she would let. This is kind of. This is something that that relates to a couple of other players that we're talking, we're going to talk about Madison keys and Sabine Lasicki, just to draw that particular comparison out. Since, since we're talking about Yankovic, um, when she would lose one game, it would bleed into the next few games and the great players, they have a bad game or a bad call occurs. They don't let it bleed into subsequent games. They're able to stop that bleeding Yankovic didn't do that enough. Uh, and I think that was one of the key reasons she didn't quite cross the threshold in her career. Yeah, you look at her record against her biggest rivals and the, her contemporaries uh, will start. And I'm cherry picking the worst record, so I apologize, Yelena Yankovic fans. But, you know, 4 and 7 against an Azarank, 2 and 4 against Kerber, 4 and 10 against Serena, 3 and 9 against Ivanovic. This is from the last decade, but 1 and 6 against Moresmo, 1 and 7 against Kleisters, 1 and 7 against Halep, 1 and 8 against Sharapova, 0 and 10 against Justine Ennin. That's really tough because that, those are the players you're going to be playing in the biggest stages. You know, three and six against Aga Radwanska, who we just talked about. Four and six against Ali Na. Um, that's really tough. And to Yelena Yankovic's credit, I feel like I should give her some credit. Look, she won a premier mandatory event this decade. 2010 in Indian Wells, she got the title there. She made a final there as well in 2015, a final in 2013 in Beijing, semifinals and finals in Miami. Oh, the final in 08, the semifinal in 2013. So, you know, she won Rome twice. She won Cincinnati once. She's had success uh, at 
at some of the biggest events she's had success. Uh, sustained really goodness, I would say, more so than Aga Radwanska, who I would say was a little bit better week in, week out on tour. But for Yel- for Yelena Yankovic, I'm going to be honest, I, I don't think she left any slams on the table. Sure, in terms of on paper, you look in 2010, we're going to talk about uh, Sam, or I guess Sam Stoser won a title, so we're not going to talk about her. But on clay, given what Yankovic had done in her career, I'm sure that's what she circles as her best opportunity, even more so than that 08 final against Serena, because in that slam semifinal, uh, I, I don't remember who Stoser lost to in that event, but uh, I'm sure Yelena Yankovic would have entered as the number four seed as one of the favorites um but for Yankovic I I don't know I don't think I don't think she was good enough this decade to have won a slam yeah I I I, I'm gonna slightly not hugely slightly disagree with that you know there were you know there were there were there were pockets of time when Serena wasn't a lot you know Serena's ultimate lockdown period you know, good night, game over, drive home safely. Period. This this past decade was 2015. Well, really, 2014 U.S. Open through the 2017 Australian Open. That two and a half year period. That that was the very very best of Serena. But there were pockets in the first half of the decade when Serena wasn't the automatic. You know, locker into the semifinals right away at the start of the tournament. You couldn't quite do that. Uh, 2013 in particular, I recall as a, as a volatile year relative to Serena. I mean, we had Azarenka beating Lee Na at the Australian, and then we had um, uh, the uh, we had the Bartoli Lasicki uh, Wimbledon final that that year. So th- there was some instability at, at certain points, and I think that Yankovic had a chance to step into some of those gaps. And she didn't do it. And you know, let's let's also remember that Yankovic tort, you know, even when her her at the beginning of her downslope in 2015, she was the one who dethroned Petra Kvitova at Wimbledon. So the, you know, there was still some really good tennis left uh, in her in, in 2015, as, as you know, but as she began to to fade away. So I would say that you know, from like 2011 through. 2013 early 2014 you know there were some opportunities there that she didn't pounce on so i wouldn't say it's a I, I, that's a resounding disagreement but she could have been a little bit more opportunistic in spots yeah and i believe she did reach a career high of world number one at one point during her career which is tough to do without yes, winning did. a slam yep. yeah it speaks to the fact that she was a successful tennis player will end here and again the time will vacillate depending on the case but for yelena yankovic hall of famer yes or no did she win a major alex gruskin well, I'm just saying maybe it was you have a world number one exception she clause. A major, Alex Gruskin. Uh, <laughs> okay, Answer so I'll take the that. question. Yeah, all right. I guess that's a no. I'll take that as a resounding no. Um, which you is fair. can't handle the truth. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, a I'm fitness tennis podcast with your host Alex Gruskin. You and Colonel Jessup definitely have the same uh, hairline, so there's no denying that. Oh, <laughs> well played. Well played. Rack yeah, so, yeah I, pre- I appreciate that. Well, then, with that. Clap that one, baby. 
<laughs> All right. Well, then with that in mind, let's get on to our next player. Again, some of these names you sent me, half the fun of doing these exercises, going back and just because I'm a nerd, I like to watch some highlights on YouTube in the buildup. And the next player I want to talk about who reached a career high of number four in the singles ranking, who reached a Grand Slam final, the only Grand Slam final of her career uh, in the 2014 Australian Open when she lost 7-6-6-0 to Lee Na. That, of course, is Dominika Sibokova, who another very interesting case. You look at uh, her success in terms of what she did outside of the majors. Another WTA Finals champion in 2016. That was probably her most complete year in that she made the finals in Madrid as well. Quarterfinals at Wimbledon. I guess not the best at the slams, but she finished 52-21, and 21, which was her best record ever. She ended up with four titles that season, the most of her career. Seven finals reached the most of her career. I guess, again, in terms of sustained top five play, I don't think Dominika Sibokova will jump out to anyone as one of the best players of the decade, but... Why for you, you know, that that Grand Slam final stands out because she really did come close. Well, so there's the fact that she made that final and then, you know, then two years later, she was still, you know, playing at a very high level. Now, in that consistency relentlessly, no, but she but but the main thing is she appeared at the top tier, you know, she of the sport uh, in a period of over a period of several years, you know, that, that to me is means that it was more than just a here today, gone tomorrow, more than just a cup of coffee. Um, You know, I think that she, she did get past the cut line uh, in terms of, you know, the standards that I have for being, having sustained success. I mean, so sustained that, you know, we can all handle that, fairly fairly loosely and fairly differently i mean it means it'll mean something different for each one of us but just to me you know having having a big year you know a a big season a couple years apart being a threat you know over a period of several years and she was uh you know that that to me is enough to to establish her uh you know as as one of the almost cases of this decade can I just say you are absolutely the first person in Great Shot podcast history to go from quoting a few good men to quoting a Drake song in a span of like two minutes. Uh, here today and gone tomorrow. That was that was good. Hey, great shot as we say on this podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no denying that 2014 year, especially in the first three months, that was or three first four months, I guess. However, you classify Indian Wells, Miami. That was probably the best stretch of her career in terms of uh, extended period. She makes the finals of the Australian Open to kick off the year, quarterfinals at Indian Wells, semifinals at uh, the Miami Open. You look at her success at the Slams over the decade. She had that final, as we mentioned, in 2014, a semifinal at the French in 09 that doesn't qualify for this decade, but still counts in terms of her results. But then uh, six other quarterfinals in the decade as well. She did it at each Slam, which in my opinion counts for something that you can't just, it's not just one surface. She's not a specialist. She's not a Schiavone, and I say that lovingly, as Schiavone got a slam, but she was doing it in a bunch of different places. Um, but yeah, it's tough. I mean, she's a player, like, she missed a majority of 2015 with different injuries. She, uh, 
there were there were spurts. There were times where she was really good, and there were times when she was not as good. You look at that stretch of hers, you know, 2012, 2013. Uh, she makes the one quarterfinal at the French Open in 2012, but outside of that, doesn't advance past the third round in the other slams. I guess for me, it's the period of, ext- you know, we, you just mentioned it, but sustained excellence. Yes, she did do it, you're right, over the course of several years, but it was never sustained top five play outside of maybe those first three months of 2014. Well, that's a fair critique. And I think that, you know, when, when we, and this gets into really a 2019 kind of question about women's tennis players and how we, we, we uh, evaluate them is that, and, and this was, this has been the theme of women's tennis in 2019. You know, can someone please play well at two straight majors? You know, <laughs> that is that has been that has been very hard for the 2019 WTA Tour to do. And can we clarify uh, and was, a non-Serena player, so someone not named Serena? Well, true. Um, you know, I mean, Serena. Yeah, I mean, you know, motherhood and injuries. And overall physical well-being have not been kind to Serena uh, in the in the first half of each of the last two years. But yeah, so at Wimbledon and U.S. Open, he, she did she did go back to back. So yeah, that's on point. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I it would be nice. To, I mean, their pockets. Osaka, you know, she went back to back in terms of end of 2018 U.S. Open, start of 2019 Australian Open, but. You know, then it was the roller coaster through the French and Wimbledon, obviously. And so, yeah, you're right. It would be nice to see that sort of sustained excellence. I suppose if Bianca Andrescu plays nowadays, she doesn't really lose. Uh, so maybe if she can just stay healthy for two slams in a row, you know, we'll see something well, excellent from her gosh, as I mean, well. You know, yeah, I mean, it's we're only uh, in late October, but of course, you know, the Hallmark Channel is already starting Christmas movies. Uh-huh. So in that vein, in that spirit, on my Christmas wish list for 2020, Bianca Andreescu playing a full season is definitely one of my top five wishes. Oh, and I mean, look, the fact that she's a player who's not someone who came closest, she got her slam. She capitalized when she was hot. Uh, yeah, that's something a lot of these players we're talking about, unfortunately, weren't able to do. Um, I don't know. I guess for Sibokova, the, the obvious one is that final in the 2014 uh, Australian Open where she lost. But outside of that, do you think she left any other slam performances? You know, is there any that really sticks out to you as the moment she came closest? Well, you know, she she had a she had a good Wimbledon run uh, a few years ago. Um, you know, w- you know, she was planning to get married, and she was uh, the the wedding was scheduled to be on championship saturday and so there was there was a worry for a period of time that uh that you know she would might have to adjust her plans she put she went that far into the tournament she didn't make the final but she came close um you know so you know it it, it is true that there's no major that i look at and say oh sibokova should have won it and you know that really is kind of a separate discussion you know did you did any player let a major slip through her fingers you know that that would be a separate discussion no so if 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 we're applying that to Sybil Kova no there was no there was no major she should have won but then not even the one against uh Lee Na at the 2014 Australia I mean Lee, that was a tight first set Lee Na won the big points and then then steamrolled in the second set 
Yeah, I agree. I hate to say it. And for Sibilkova, I think we're going to definitely agree, not a Hall of Famer uh, with all due respect to her. But she was certainly one of the talents of the decade. I think Radwanska is more important in defining the narrative of the 10 years of women's tennis. But Sibilkova had her moments where she was really excellent. So I definitely a player I'm glad we talked about on this list. Um, but moving on to our next player. And again, uh, I'm, I'm trying to save some of the more relevant players, those still on to or for the end of the conversation for you listeners. So uh, kind of veering in and out of that. But the next player I want to talk about, another player with a Grand Slam final on her resume. Uh, She, of course, made the 2013 Wimbledon final where she lost to Marion Bartoli 6-1-6-4. In terms of career ranking, she reached a career high of number 12, which is on the lower side of this list in 2012. I, of course, am talking about Sabine Lisicki, the next player on this list. Um, Now, in terms of slam losses for Lisicki, that loss to Bartoli kind of stands out as feels the most winnable. Uh, In terms of doubles, I don't know if this counts because obviously we're more focused on the singles, but she made a doubles final as well with Sam Stozer in 2011 Wimbledon, uh, losing uh, straight sets in that final. In terms of her career performances, uh, you look at what she did at the slams uh, over the course of her career. I mean, there was the final, obviously, in 2013, but that's what really sticks out is in in five Wimbledons that she played in a row, uh, she played quarterfinals 2009 didn't play 2010 but semifinals 2011 quarterfinals 2012 finals 2013 quarterfinals 2014 in her career in terms of the titles she won uh she did win a single in 2011 she won in Birmingham on the grass uh in 2013 she made the final at Wimbledon obviously but grass was something she was always successful on feels like she really could have stolen a Wimbledon this decade yeah, so with Lasicki, it's this is one of the weaker selections uh, that uh, that I came up with because it applies really not to the majors in general. It applies to just to Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Now she didn't she didn't throw down especially strong or sustained results at, at the other three, but you know she was born to play on Wimbledon. That her serve was rewarded uh, on on the grass surface. Um, a good reminder that, you know, grass is not green clay, despite what Federer <laughs> fans think. Um, you know, she was born to play on that service. And, and when I when I think about Lissicki's game, um, it it's not the same as Bianca Andrescu's, but but there is definitely the, the one general. It's not a very specific similarity because Andre, Andrescu is so much more versatile uh, than Lissicki ever was. But but. What Lisicki and Andrescu both share is an ability to to play extreme power tennis and then put a feathery drop shot on you. I mean that mm-hmm. the, the, to go from brutal power to a, a soft touch drop shot that that is something that both of them have in common. Now Andrescu was so much better from the back of the court in terms of ground strokes, uh, stroke production, technique, consistency. You know, she she's Lisicki's not in the same universe as her. I mean, Andrescu just totally would totally dwarf her in that regard. But you know, in terms of like a serve and then a drop shot, uh, in terms of you know overwhelming power and then you know something light and fluffy uh, to to get you completely off balance, they, they both could do that. And obviously, the huge point of differentiation between Andrescu and Lisicki more than their 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 ground strokes was the emotional component. I mean, Lasicki was just, you know, this is not an insult. It's just, it it is what it is. It is what it was. 
and that is that she was emotionally fragile. She she was just an emotionally frail player. Um, it, it she. You know, she she makes Yankovic look like Andrescu in, in in terms of the psychology of sports and, and being able to focus yourself and contain yourself when things aren't going well. I mean, just Lasicki did not handle downturns well, I and mean, she was prone to very volatile stretches. She wouldn't just go through like a twenty minute bad patch. She would let whole sets and and matches get away from her, um, and, and, and even worse of a if a pressure player late in big tournaments uh, than Yankovic was. So, you know, whereas Andrescu, you know, we we saw the mental rock that she was uh, at this U.S. Open in which she's been, you know, throughout 2019. So really the inner game of tennis, uh, Timothy Galway all the way, <laughs> that really was, is the big differentiation point between Lasicki and Andrescu. But, you know, that that huge power and then the light drop shot, that is that is something that they they both share. And and here's the thing, to Sabine Lasicki's credit, you know, in from that 2012 to 2013 stretch, Serena won Wimbledon 2012, the U.S. Open 2012. She didn't win the 2013 uh, Australian Open, but she won 2013 French Open, 2013 U.S. Open. You know who beat her at Wimbledon? Sabine Lasicki. You know, in three sets, that matters. That's as good of a win as you can get in your career. And so she reached that point. She beat the best player. You're right. All, everything you said stands. I, mean, I really appreciate the way uh, you just discussed Lasicki as a grass court specialist because that's such a crucial part of this argument. You're right. You know, career high of number 12 speaks to the fact that she never had a sustained stretch of top 10 excellence given that she could never make the top 10, given that tennis is a multi-surface sport, but that we still had a surface specialist in the 2010s in Sabine Lasicki, that was fun within itself. That was really always so fun to watch. And yeah, I I mean, she did come close. That, that stretch at Wimbledon, you know, that's probably the best run we've had from any player on this list in terms of add a slam over a sustained period of time outside of maybe Rodwanska, who again, I'm just going to try and make it look as good as possible throughout this podcast. But that she made, you know, quarterfinal, semifinal, quarterfinal, final, quarterfinal at her five straight Wimbledon she competed at. That's a really good stretch of time. She was that good on the grass. She was a top 10, maybe even top 5 player on that surface. And so that matters now. The Hall of Fame question doesn't stand at all. But I I think it's fair to say she was one of the players who came closest to winning a slam without doing it in the 2010s. Yeah, in in many ways, she is Ivanisevic without, you know, finally crossing the threshold of the big W. I like that. I like that a lot. That's a, that's a good, I would, yeah, it, that's very, uh, perfectly put. I like it. We can move on from there. Well, then let's get to our next player. Um, and again, we've got one, two, three, four, five players to go. Uh, our last player who's not currently, we'll say, act, uh, our last player, nope, one of, no, yeah, this is our last player who is not currently active and still playing a high level of tennis. The player I am talking about next reached a career high in the rankings of number eight in 2015. You look at her success. She is a three-time slam champion in doubles, uh, but you look in terms of singles performances this decade, two semifinals, four quarterfinals to her name, all of those coming within the 2012 to 2015 time frame. I, of course, am talking about Ekaterina Makarova, uh, who was an inclusion you had on this list. And Matt, I'm curious, why was that? To, to me, this was not a player I would have circled, I'm going to be honest, because doubles, her results speak for herself. And I suppose a stretch of uh, six slams 
wins where she goes quarterfinal, fourth round, third round, quarterfinal, semifinal, semifinal. That's very good. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. Why, why too, did she stick out as someone who wanted or who you thought should be mentioned in this conversation? Yeah, this was also this would also reasonably be at the lower end of, of the of the scale in terms of these various players who didn't win a major this decade. But you know the fact that she did collect uh, you know several quarterfinal appearances and a few semis, um, you know that, so that that registered for me. And the other thing is, she was you know a, a a very consistent factor at the Australian Open. I mean, she for 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 more than two years. I think at least three, if not four, she was a player you did not want to face in Melbourne. I mean, so she, real quick, to that there. point, a, a seven-year stretch from 2011 to 2017, fourth round, quarterfinal, quarterfinal, fourth round, semifinal, fourth round, fourth round. You're right. That's excellent. Well, I mean, it's, it's very, it, it's, it reflects being in the hunt fairly regularly and, and being dangerous on a higher scale than players who would, you know, flame out or, or, you know, early in the first week of a major. And also let's consider that she made the semifinals at multiple majors. You know, mm-hmm. she was able to get to the, to the semifinals at the U S open. So it wasn't, she wasn't just the one note player that Sabine Lasicki was, you know, at one of the four majors, Makarova made an imprint at, at a second one. And then I also reflect on the fact that, you know, she, she gave, an elite player, Caroline Wozniacki, a hard time throughout this decade. Um, she she just hounded Wozniacki again and again and again, and she's been in the the hunt uh, in terms of matches at important tournaments against really good players. So you know, I think that she, I mentioned her because she did, while she didn't get to a major final, and her her period of of you know, top quality wasn't quite as long as, as others that we're discussing. She did make more of her career than two other Russians. Uh, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova would be one who never made a major semifinal. And then another one who didn't make a major semifinal, Nadia Petrova. You know, I just, I think that I just, I selected Makarova because she deserves an extra bit of recognition compared to Pavs and Petrova, uh, who, you know, whom she has, clearly outdistanced at the major tournaments. Yeah, and look, in terms of her success on the doubles uh, court, that speaks for herself. Now, now the Hall of Fame argument might get interesting because you add what she did in singles, plus she has three double slams. Uh, we'll get to that question in a second, but just to round out the conversation about her singles career. Look, she wasn't the best. Uh, you know, no World Tour Finals appearances to her name in terms of at the Premier Mandatories, two quarterfinals, uh, one in Miami, one in Madrid, uh, but a bunch of fourth rounds in Miami over the course of her career. Only one semifinal at a Premier 5 that came in Toronto in 20, I believe, 15 or 2014, excuse me, uh, two quarterfinals at Premier 5s, one in Dubai, one in Tokyo. Uh, in terms of her year-end rankings, the highest she end, ended at was uh, number 12. Again, that was in 2014 as well. Uh, yeah, her stretch at the end of 2014 to the start of 2015 where she went quarterfinals, Wimbledon, semifinals, U.S. Open, semifinals, Toronto, uh, and then ultimately starting off semi final Australian Open quarterfinal in Dubai. That's a pretty good five-month stretch. Uh, But to me, if she's going to get into the Hall of Fame, it comes off of the back of that she was that good in singles, and then she had a doubles career on top of it as well. And so that's where I want to end with that final question. Uh, Makarova, Hall of Famer, yes or no? 
Uh, well, you know, po- possible for doubles. Um, and, you know, that that's why, you know, if if, if uh, Makarova's career could be referred to as a sitcom, it would be Kate and Allie, you know, just a gifted doubles player. <laughs> I like I'm, it. I, apo- I apologize. <laughs> I had it in mind, and dadgummit, I was going to blurt it out of my mouth. <laughs> No, um, look, again, we're an hour deep in this Great Shot podcast. That's how listeners expect it to roll at this point. Um, Again, you didn't—you said maybe there, if you had to guess, yes or no. If you were a voter. I mean, four other double slam finals on top of the three titles, four semifinals on top of that. She reached number one in terms of being a doubles player. She had some success in terms of Fed Cup. I think we— I, I, you know, we're not talking singles here. We're talking doubles. I think she deserved to get in as a doubles player. All right, I'll take it. I just wanted one Hall of Famer from you on this that's, list. That's 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 heavy lifting on the doubles side. Yeah. Hey, look, I, as a doubles player myself, I appreciate that. The tennis Hall of Fame, if, if it's tennis, that includes doubles. So you know, we're we're not we're not going to have some bizarre alternative set of standards for doubles. Hope you enjoyed part one of this week's Best of the Decade series conversation I had with Matt Zemek. Of course, Matt and I just talked about some of the best players from the WTA 2010s who did not win a Grand Slam now. Whenever Matt comes on, of course, him and I are going to discuss for at least hour, hour and a half. Well, this time we hit the hour 40 mark, and we don't want to overwhelm you listeners all at once. So we decided we were going to divide this podcast into two parts. Part one, you just listened to, obviously, being players whose careers more close you know they're either their careers have ended or they're very much near the end part two which we're going to release Wednesday will be players who are still around who uh you know may not have won a slam yet but given the level we've seen from them over the past five ten years certainly seems like they're capable of winning a slam come the start of the 2020 so be on the lookout for that to drop on Wednesday have to give a huge shout out of course to Matt Zemek who again willing to go an hour 40 putting up with me my parents don't even do that anymore so really appreciate that from Matt and if you want to hear more from him, check out his stuff. Go check out their website, tennisaccent.com. Check out their podcast, Tennis with an Accent, Sakabali. Got the chance to interview Jose Higueras, of course, former Roger Federer coach. Really, really fun interview, and we support all of the work they do, so please go give that a check out. Huge shout-out, of course, to our very own super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, who have a an editing job to do, as always. I'm turning podcasts into two parts. Uh, listeners, stay stick around, by the way, this week, because we've got some really fun interviews coming out across our other podcast platforms on the mini break of course we'll be keeping you up to date on all the results wta finals paris masters and the whatnot but also we've got some really fun uh, journalists i'm not going to give a sneak but we've got a really fun guest coming on i believe wednesday night for thursday's pod of course vicky duvall doing all of her great stuff on the cracked interviews uh, as well with her recent interview with anna Konya. of course salty i couldn't be on that got to give a shout out as well uh you know all the college players who've been willing to come on to the podcast recently Estella Perez, Somariba, Keegan Smith, uh, the Yale women's doubles champion. You'll get that this week. Paul Jubb, you'll get that this week. Brandon Nakashima, of 
course, as well on whether he will come back or not. So a lot of fun interviews in the queue. Again, please go like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the, the Cracked Interviews podcast, the Mini Brick podcast. I've been going through it all week, but in 15 seconds, I mean, this podcast was much longer than 15 seconds. So I swear, you know, at some point during the pod, just when you're inevitably staring at your phone, maybe you want to skip through a bad Rothman take, so you're hitting the jump 15 seconds ahead mark. In that time frame, instead, just ignore Rothman's take. Leave a little five-star rating at the time. Leave a little comment. Hey, Rothman, this was a really boring take, and I heard it, and I I was so bored that I decided, you know what would be even better than this? Going to write that long-awaited comment so I could get Gruskin to finally shut up about it. But, again, with that in mind, shout from our wonderful Matt Zemek, who was kind enough to join us today for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westup, and from our entire team at the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we will see you all for part two. Thanks, everyone.